Hello, everyone. My name's Barbara, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> you know, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, it just, it's so wonderful. I just I get so excited about it. And over the years that I've been in the program, I've had the opportunity to go many places and attend many conferences and conventions and all. Two years ago, I went with Janice to the Southeastern Conference in Louisville, Kentucky. They had lots of wonderful speakers there. But the one that was so special to me is the speaker you're going to hear tonight. When he talked, I listened because he talked about things that my sponsor talked to me about when I came into this program. And when I thought about it, they had about the same length of time. She passed away several years ago, and I missed her, you know, a whole lot. But when I heard him and I heard his tape, oh, I just play it all the time. He rides around the car with me. But a few, um, last month I had the opportunity to go to Akron, and Don took me all around Akron. I got to go to Dr. Bob's house and to the grave and to the gatehouse and just everywhere, and it was absolutely wonderful. And so tonight, I would like to introduce you to my wonderful friend and your new friend, Don from Cleveland, Ohio. Thank you. Uh, I'm glad to be here, but you know, I got a bad start because they told me they're going to pass the basket first in the event that I don't do well, they're gonna, you can run out, you know? So I said, maybe I'll do well and you can pass the basket again. That's the way I figured about this, you know. Uh, I'm down here from Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, and through the grace of God and this fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and a good sponsor I've had for the past 35 years, uh, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink. And for that, I'm grateful. Somebody's getting beeped. Uh, you know, I... Uh, I, I believe in Alcoholics Anonymous with everything I possess. And I was fortunate enough that when I come to AA, I spent five years with Sister Ignatia before she passed away. I spent time with Clarence Snyder. My father-in-law came in AA in 1939, and my uncle came in in 1941. And most of the people from Cleveland area that came in at that time, there were some of them still alive. The first 200 men were still alive. And I, we were taught well, you see. We were taught well. And I say this not to be facetious about the whole thing, but I want you to know that when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, we had 75% recovery. We didn't have money, much psychobabble at that time. We just had people who don't drink, go to meetings, clean house, and help others. You know, very simple. And if you couldn't sleep at night, they would tell you, don't worry about it. Nobody died from lack of sleep. <laughs> and if you called them up and late at night, you complained about your wife left you or some damn thing, they tell you, you're lucky. You don't know how well off you are now that she's gone. I, uh, I like to tell you, I'm probably in a minority over here. I'm Italian, and I don't think there's any more here. And, you know, I don't know if Italians want to live in the worst. It's Montgomery, right? It's too hot. <laughs> and we've been in hell too long. We don't want... But, you know, uh, I got some friends here that came up from Alabaster. Is that the city? Carol and her husband, Kelly, and I got another friend that... He and I made many meetings together, Larry, and he lives down someplace else in Florida, Gulf Shores, but it was nice to see him, you know. But, you know, I, I don't know anything about what I heard today. Some of these meetings, if they didn't read the preamble, I don't know where I would be. You see, some of these meetings, I haven't got a clue what's going on. I don't know nothing about Feelings Anonymous. I know nothing about inner child, boundaries and perimeters, and most of all, I don't know anything about Prozac. So, <laughs> at that softer, easier way. And if there's anything I firmly believe in is the singleness of purpose. And I was really glad to see this conference the way it operated today. And I haven't been to a general service conference in a while. Maybe I've been to them and I didn't know they were general service conferences, you know. <laughs> but, you know, and really I watched the, the whole thing work and, and I've been to some of these workshops here and it was amazing, really, I think it was. And I think if A is going to be saved, and I think that we're at the crossroads now, and I don't mean to scare anybody, but the bottom line is true is true. And beyond your wildest dreams, I think our integrity of our traditions have been challenged in the last seven or eight years beyond our wildest dreams. And we've got to get back to the singleness of purpose because we cannot be a melting pot for everybody. This is...
And whatever I say is in the book. It's in the pamphlets. I heard one of your literature people say, some people don't read the pamphlets. You know, some people don't read the book even, you know, but they're quoting out of the big book. And, you know, we're not a collecting ground for everything. For the people who don't know what happened when AA began, let me just give you a brief summary of this. When the thing started, people were trying to help alcoholics, drunks, the Washingtonians started, but they had all other things they were curing. And for 10 years, they had more people than we had in 1980. They had 10,000 members quickly right then at that time, in less than two years' time. But they fell by the wayside because they tried to take care of everything except the main purpose, singleness of purpose. And then we came in with the Oxford group, and that worked fine. It worked fine until the good people who were the church-going people from the Oxford group didn't want the drunks around. (laughs) So what happened, they started to have a problem. So the guy from Cleveland, Ohio, Clarence Snyder, decided that because Catholics couldn't get in here, he was going to... He called Dr. Bob, and he went to Akron and told Dr. Bob, this is the last time we're coming as an Oxford group. We're starting AA in Cleveland, and we're going to call it Alcoholics Anonymous after the book. And I thank God for that, because, you know, I probably would have never got in here. I'm a Catholic. You know, I'm trying to be one, you know. But I, I, I thank God that he did these things, because we wouldn't be here today if we kept doing... And, you know, it's sad, and I say this because I... There's somebody I talked to. I'm not mentioning who it is, but it's not up to him because I will tell you this. This is a spiritual program. It is not religious. And as soon as we start making this a religious program or we're trying to bring psychiatry into Alcoholics Anonymous, it didn't work with Dr. Silkworth and Jung. So let's not try to bring psychiatry in here today. We have a psychiatrist that makes people walk around with broken eggs in their hand, teach them humility. You just don't do that to people. They're coming in and they're sick. And, you know, I got a book here that Sister Ignatia, as I told you, she gave everybody this book. It's a little tattered and torn now, but it, it said Confidence in God. And on the front page on mine, she wrote, she gave, you, she gave you the dignity that men deserve when they're trying to get well. And she called me Mr. Don Cassini. She said, August 31st, 1961, that's the day I took my last drink. And I left the hospital October 18th because I was near death, and you'll hear more about that later. May God love you and bless you and keep you forever so close to his sacred heart. Sister Mary Ignatia, please say a prayer for me. And you know, I believe that this is not a religious program. Neither did Sister Ignatia believe it was a religious program. And why we think we're going to bring all this psychobabble in here, and it's a simple program, 200 words. I don't know if you counted the steps. There's 200 words in those steps. Now, if you don't believe me, count them, because, you know, I I did that when somebody told me it was 200 words. I didn't believe it, so I counted them. Now, as we go along, I'm going to tell you this. I may throw out some page numbers for you, so you check them out. If I ever come back to Montgomery, you let me know when I'm, I told you the wrong page. But, you know, I had every reason to say I was a victim. This is another thing I don't understand, victimization, you know. My God, everybody's a victim today. What the hell? If you got drunk and you puked all over, whose fault is it? Is your mother's fault? She, she didn't teach you how to not to puke? But, you know, I... Uh, I, it reminds me, and I've got to say this before we go any farther, because I like to laugh. I'm serious about Alcoholics Anonymous, but I like to laugh, and I think laughter is the language of the heart. And there was a guy who used to be at St. Thomas Hospital where Sister Ignatius started in Akron. He, you just, his name was. And when you walked in there, he'd bring a drunk in there, and he'd say to the drunk, you know why you're here? The drunk would say, no. He said, because you're not all there. And you know, <laughs> that's about it. Very simple. You're nuts. But, you know, I, thinking about these things, there's two little kids playing in the backyard one day, and the father hits his finger with a hammer, and he starts swearing out loud, and the mother heard him swearing, and he said, you know, you can't go to church with me today, tomorrow. And the kids heard that, and, they, and the father said, under his breath, good, we'll go fishing. So the kids heard that. They didn't want to go to church for nothing, so they're trying to get a couple of swear words, you know. So they figured, what kind of words could we find? And, you know, a kid two and a half, three years old, and the other one about four and a half, four and a quarter. And they come up with the word hell and ass. So these kids stay up half of the night by constant repetition. You know, that's how you learn, constant repetition. It comes out easy. And all of a sudden, they stayed up and they made sentences out of it. And when they made the sentences out, they finally went to bed about 3 o'clock, and they're going to tell the mother at 10. So all night long, this is pounding in their heads. The great computer's computing those words, hell and ass, hell and ass. So that morning, they get up, and they're sitting at the table at 9 o'clock, and unbeknownst to them, they're just relaxed, waiting for 10 o'clock to tell the mother the sentences. And the mother said, Johnny, what would you like to have for breakfast? And Johnny looked up, and he said, oh, hell, I'll have some oatmeal. Bang, she beat the daylights out of Johnny. <laughs> Poor two-and-a-half-year-old kid didn't know what was happening. 
Then she looked over to Jimmy and she said, Jimmy, what would you like? He says, you bet your ass I don't want no oatmeal. <laughs> so you, you see, we're, we're, in a, we're in a, between a rock and a hard place, you know? You know, and I, uh, I, I want to tell you, I told you I was Italian. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that in 1960 that they, they changed that thing. And it says you had to have an honest desire, so they made it sincere, because Italians would have never got in if we had to be honest. <laughs> but anyhow, I, uh, I was born and raised in an Italian neighborhood, which uh, today I think of my, I was, a, I, you know, was just, I was all Italians, you know, ethnic, all Italians, one side was Irish and one side Polacks, you know. I don't know if you know what Polacks are, but they're Slovenian or something like that, you know. They wear money belts and tennis shoes. And, <laughs> and you know... That's right, lady. <laughs> Anyhow, and I was raised with all Italians, and I was born, I don't want to tell you this, but the truth is I was born before the Big Depression in 29. I'm 73 years old. I'm just a young man in an old container, you know. <laughs> but I'm, I'm trying But, you know, I went through that depression, and, you know, I, I hear people being victimized that they didn't have no money, they didn't have no... We didn't have food either. Nobody had food. What the hell was the big deal? Everybody was broke, you know. Nobody had coal. I had to go steal coal on the railroad cars and so we could heat the house. Coal furnaces. And, and I tell you, I can remember these people. I, the thing I really like, this is the one that makes me feel the best of it all. When I think of my parents, how they had a piece of sausage maybe about that long and there was five of us or six of us had to eat it. And the father and mother would not eat the meat. They would let the kids eat it and they would dip the bread in the oil and grease from the sausage drippings. And then I hear some of these mothers, their kids gave them everything, cars, and they hate their mother and father. Meaning, if my kid ever said that to me, he would never hate no more. <laughs> never hate no more. You know, I got to say what I'm thinking about that kid of mine. I got a kid that was down in Georgia. See, he lives in Georgia, Atlanta. And he got caught in uh, Valdesta, Georgia. And he called me up and he said, Dad, I'm in jail. I said, why? You're so goddamn smart. How did you get in jail? He said, I got, they called me with that pipe and I didn't smoke that marijuana. I said, well, I'm going to tell you something. You're so damn smart. You got in that way. Now, see how smart you are to get out. And I let him stay for eight days. <laughs> and he, I don't think he smokes any more that wacky tobacco. Tell you that. Because, <laughs> you know, one time, shame on me. Next time, shame on you, pal. But, you know, and I hear these people blaming their mothers and fathers for everything. Uh, that's another program. I think it's called ADAC or something like that. No offense against them. Don't get me wrong. But it's a lot easier to find a victim that made you the victim. My book says we stop blaming people, places, and things. We are the problem. And I was young, and I was 17 years old, and the war broke out, World War II, and I decided I'm going to do the country a favor, and I'm going to beat those Japs, because we thought we could knock them out in a week and a half, burn those huts down, you know? So I went to the Army at 17 years old, and I didn't drink yet. And when I got there, I realized I made a very grave mistake, because I joined, because I didn't like discipline at home, and I really got it over there. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you very briefly and very short... My army career was very star-studded. I like to tell you I got purple hearts and I got silver stars. I got everything. I had 15 summaries, two generals, was sent to Leavenworth Penitentiary for two years and given an honorable discharge. <laughs> this is a kid that loves America. <laughs> and I didn't drink, you see, because alcohol gets too many times gets blamed for too many things. I have never inventoried alcohol. Now, for your inventory in alcohol, you're in the wrong room too, you know. Because we inventory our character defects, and I had a lot of those things. I had an attitude problem that carried me right into my first year in AA. I had an attitude problem that wouldn't quit. But anyhow, I, uh, I drank one time in the United States Army. This was before I went away. I met a girl in Joplin, Missouri, and we went from a town that was called Waynesboro, better known as Gonorrhea Gulch. You'd get the bus there and go to a dance, you see. <laughs> And we go to dance, and when we were young, I see a lot of people here with gray hair, you know. And, you know, it's nice to see gray-haired people in AA. Because when we were young, we danced differently than you kids do. We'd hold the girl close, and we knew what we had in our arms, you know. And then we'd sort of put our knee in between her legs and sort of dip them down to the floor. And they'd grab on you tight, see, and then you knew what you had in your hand. <laughs> and, you know, I watched, I watched these kids that are dancing on, they're running around like they're in... Oh, throwing everything around. Some guys haven't been with a girl for two dances. They haven't touched one. <laughs> I was at Founders Day three years ago, and my father, father, my, my sponsor and I were looking at these, and I looked at this beautiful body in stonewashed jeans, you know. 
And I said to my sponsor, look at the body on that chick with the stonewashed jeans and the long blonde hair. And he said, where? I said, right up at the corner of the bandstand. Just that, the, turned around and had a full handlebar mustache. <laughs> That's why they get in trouble with that alternative lifestyle, you know. <laughs> but, uh, but really, I, uh, I went, and we, you couldn't get whiskey. I heard somebody talking about Lucky Strike Green went to war. He, he was, he's at this conference someplace. He was talking about how Lucky Strike Green went to war. You know, I don't think most of you remember that. I don't know what it had to do with the winning the war, but they used the green paint. Anyhow, when we, there was no alcohol. See, this is the uh, start of 1942, January 1942. And there was no alcohol because they were using it on cleaning compasses and everything they cleaned. And I went to buy alcohol because I wanted to get this girl sexy in a hurry. I heard alcohol was a social lubricant. And I, uh, I, I bought, and he said, no alcohol, the war's on. So I said, what the hell? I don't know about this stuff. And he said, well, I said, what do you got to make a girl sexy? He's like, oh, Mr. Boston Creamy Top Slow Gin. I look like wine. I said, give me two bottles. I figured my dad could drink two bottles of wine in a night. What the hell? Two of us and get her sexy. Who cares? So we start dancing, and we dance, as I told you, differently. We dipped them a little. We start sipping on that gin and dipping. Oh, we were just going nicely. Sipping and dipping, sipping and dipping. <laughs> the moonlight was going around, and then we were sipping and dipping. And it's about 11.30. We finished one bottle of gin. I don't have any recollection if we drank. I think we drank it straight, because when I got sober, I think Dr. Pepper came out, and I thought Dr. Pepper reminded me of it, you know. So we were sipping and dipping by 11.30. Now, I don't know what to do. She's not getting the program. I got the program, and she's not working on it. <laughs> So I figured, what do I do now? So then what I did, I went and I remembered. Now, we had a computer up here, the greatest computer in the world. I may say something tonight, in a year from now or two years, you may recall it. If you need it, you'll recall it. And I remember what my buddy Clem Bone, he had all the answers for everybody. You know, when you're a young kid, you got a, a mentor. You know, he was the guy that drove a big 37 Buick Roadmaster, you know, had packed a bottle of whiskey in his glove box, took you to dances. And he said, when you're dancing with them, if you want to get them sexy, you blow in their ear. So I was sip, dipping, and blowing, sip, dipping, and blowing. <laughs> Next thing you know, I woke up in Springfield, Missouri. Don't know what. First time out of the shoot, I lost my money. I lost my the girl I was with that night. Didn't know how the hell I got to Springfield, Missouri, and I had to call the MPs to go back. And now that's the first of the month. And we were paid well because I hear some of these kids today making two thousand dollars a month in the army. Where the hell was I? Twenty-one dollars a month. And they took out that time I went to get my money, they paid in a brown envelope, cash, and they gave me $11. I said, where's the other 10? He said, well, you got an allotment taken out of your check. Well, I don't know nothing about allotment. I said, my mother didn't even tell me nothing about that one. And then when I went to see the company commander, I wanted to know why, he said, Cassini, he didn't call me that, he called me Cassini. He, had a, he was a southerner, you know, no offense to you people. <laughs> and he said... You know, what happened that weekend we picked you up in Springfield was you, you got married. I said, no, I didn't. He said, yes, you did. <laughs> and for you old timers, you may remember at that time, all they needed was your dog tag number and you were married if they had that number. So I was married, I guess. So I didn't believe it. <laughs> you know, I wasn't going to believe that. I went to talk to my com commander. He didn't believe me. I told a couple other people. They didn't believe me. Then I finally went to see a priest. You know, where else to go? You don't have to need them. It's like few people in AA today. You don't need God until a crisis comes, right? Why, why bother with him? I don't need him. Like I said to these couple girls, you know, how about the de character defects? She says, I want to get rid of most of them, but some I want to save for the weekend. That's <laughs> not bad, you know. So anyhow, I was told this priest what happened. He sort of looked at me kind of funny, and he said, I'll see what I can do. So I figured, the hell, he ain't going to find nothing out. Four months later, he found out this girl was... They were, all the money was going to the same house with the same first name with different last names, and they wrote checks out by hand at that time. You know, they wrote the allotment checks out. So they found out she was the girl that I married. But she was very patriotic because she married five or six guys that weekend. <laughs> and, and I don't know if I was drugged or what the hell happened. I like to think I was drugged. I really believe that. That was the end of my drinking. When I was in the penitentiary in Leavenworth there, Kansas... Uh, they asked who wanted to join the suicide outfit. If you came back, it was advanced scouts. They didn't call them rangers at that time. They took us through some very heavy special combat training. And, you know, and I put my hand up because I wanted to get out of that penitentiary. And he said, well, you guys are the best men we got. So they sent us over there to Georgia to do some training. And we were shipped overseas, and we made two major invasions, and we never bothered. We got in there and... Went in and radioed back instruction, but on a third invasion, 
all hell broke loose. And my cousin Mikey, I talk about his brother Bad Eye in a little bit. My cousin Mikey was two men over from me, men between Mickey and I. And somebody, we were going into the caves with flamethrowers. And I'd like to tell you, that's why I drank too, you know, that's a good reason. And my cousin Mikey, somebody stepped on the landmine, it wasn't me, and blew everybody up and I was hurt bad enough to come home. And after major surgery in Hawaii, I went to Hawaii, uh, California to recuperate, and I fell in love with California. And when I got discharged, I never came home. I stayed in California. And I forgot I had a mother and father here, family, I forgot everything. See, I just fell in love with California. So there was nothing I could do. I didn't have a trade. I didn't have no skill or anything. So I did some menial jobs. I've worked all of my life, all of my life. I've never collected a workman's comp check or whatever you want to call it, unemployment. I've always worked. And that was part of my morals and upbringing my dad taught me. And he said, if you want something, you've got to work for it. And if you want to get better at something, you've got to practice it until you become proficient. And we have to do that in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not a just one-shot deal. Some people are to get smart too soon. You know, it's like the dog that craps fast. He don't crap long. But, you know, we got a lot of these people in AA that are just zipping through the top. Boy, they're flying right up there. They got God in their hip pocket, you know. So anyhow, after a while, I was working in perfume factories and pressing records, whatever it may be. And then one day, a couple of these people, better known as them, they were all Italian now, you know. They belonged to an organization that the papers called us Kefauver, and them guys said we were nasty people. And uh, my cousin Bad Eye was in that outfit, and they were in California going to organize the studios. And they were better known as the Mafia, for those who don't understand what that is. But I will tell you one thing. Alcoholics Anonymous is like the Mafia, because if you leave here, you're dead. There's no two ways about it. And, and I've never seen anybody come back up to this podium and stagger and say, you jerks, why don't you go out and drink some more? It's wonderful. They all come back with their tail between their legs. And, you know, when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, slip meant to you, sobriety lost its priority, you know. And now they come in, they give them hugs and kisses. Come on back. If they, I got all those kisses, I'd have slipped. I'd have never stayed sober. I'd have kept on slipping. But anyhow, I went and the guys, we, after they settled that strike, I had a guarded door so no one got in with a baseball bat or a pick handle, whatever it was the tool of the day. And when we all went to Vegas, then they decide what we we're going to do, get a job. Everybody was working there as a strike, strike got the strike union in, got a job with the studios. So my term come and I stood up there and this little Italian guy, swarthy Italian guy, five foot five or four foot four and a half each way, he says, what kind of the job are you like, a boy? He was from Chicago, I'll never forget. And my cousin Bad Eye standing there and I don't know what the hell to tell him. I told him I want to be a hairdresser. And this guy looked at me, he says, what's the matter, boy? You kind of funny? I said, no, ask my cousin Bad Eye. My cousin Bad Eye had enough of me between him and his brother that got killed over there when I was there with him in the islands. And he said, let him go. Now, I'm going to straighten you out now because I'm not funny, you see. But I went to beauty school in 1940 for 30 days. And the reason I went, because I heard there was 102 girls to two guys. <laughs> and, you know, mathematically, I knew even a blind chicken gets a kernel of corn once in a while. <laughs> so I went back in 1941. And I went back, and, and then I went to work for 20th Century Fox, you know. And I was blessed because Helen Hunt was the director of hairdressing there at the time. And, and, and maybe there was something about me she liked. I don't know what it was. But I was just one of those wise kids, wise, wise and I'm a kid off the corners. And she started helping me become a good hairdresser. They taught me. And it's because they taught me and I had to apply. Now, our books tell us everything we have to do. But if we don't apply it, it just doesn't work. Self-knowledge has no value to you if you don't know how to use it. And if they showed me something, I would practice on a starless hair and do it for nothing. Long before I knew about A, you give it away to keep it. See, I didn't know that. And I would do their hair for nothing. So when the time came that I had my name on the screen after a while, I was somebody. Now that ego comes in, that Italian ego. Man, you start buying some fine Italian gabardine suits, you know. You buy them banana yellow triple-A shoes, you know. And you, <laughs> you strut down Hollywood Boulevard and the war's still on. So you want to be a hero. And you, so you put a ruptured, ruptured duck over here. Some of you guys may remember that. If you were wounded, they give you a ruptured duck to put on your coat. So you strut on the avenue, see. And so things were well. And I wasn't drinking. I still was drinking only Coca-Cola. And one day, 
I walked into Billy Berg's on the corner of Hollywood and Vine. It was a hot day. We had no air conditioning in those buildings or not. So I was waiting for a kid from New York City. We were going to go to Catalina Island. And this kid don't show up. And I see two girls walk in that bar. And the door was open. And you could see the glistening of the bottles. And there was a trio sitting up on the top of the stage playing. And it was Nat King Cole trio. And those girls walked in. They walked by. They looked good. They smelled good. And I just went right after them, you know. Followed them right in. Sat next to them. Now suddenly the bartender already gets their drink. And now he says to me, what would you like to drink? And I said, give me what they're drinking. I didn't know what it was, but I bought it. And it was a slow gin or some drink, girls drink, you know, a lot of... And I drank it and nothing happened. Now it amazes me sometimes. I hear these kids that are three years old. They took a drink. The whole world opened up and they can go drink for drink until they were 48 years old. I don't remember what the hell I did two weeks ago, you know. But, you know, I, nothing happened. I took that drink, and it just didn't happen. Nothing happened. And I started drinking a little bit more each day, not to speak of, and I went along well. I went along well. And all of a sudden, about 1947, the end of 47, these same guys that got me in the studios wanted the favor, and there was no wire service on the West Coast at that time. So they set up a phony bookie joint, and they wanted me to get the movie stars to be stung. Now, if you saw the movie Sting with Paul Muley, Paul uh, Newman, that's exactly what happened, see? And when it was all over with and the blood was flying with the phony bullets and all these, these movie stars were crazy because somebody got killed there, I told them, now, you guys better get to Lake Tahoe because I'm getting out of here. We're wanted for murder and you're part of it. So they went to Lake Tahoe and they stayed up there. And I got a train and come back to Cleveland. And when I come back to Cleveland, I was here for two days and I realized I made a mistake. My drinking's picking up. My mother and father's complaining that I come home two nights late. What the hell? What are you doing with lipstick on your collar? Ma, how did you have three children? You dumb or something? I, you know, Italians don't know nothing. So I went to New York City where I had an uncle up there. And he, my uncle owned the Tavern on the Green, the Piccadilly Circus Bar, and the Theater Bar and Grill all in Times Square. And the theater, the, 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 in the park over there. You know, and he, he was part of that same outfit, you know, so... When I got there, I couldn't get a job, and he said, uh, well, and he said, if you keep on drinking and my joints like that, I want to call your father. I said, no, don't call my father, please. I don't want him to hear anything about this drinking. And he said, well, he said, what do you want to do? I said, get me a job someplace, and I'll, I'll uh, to go to work. I'll work. I want to work. So he introduced me to Helena Rubenstein, and some of you women may remember her. And I told her what I could do and what I did at the Moose Studios, and she said, if you're that good, you got a job. She said... Do you like to travel? I said, yes, all but California. I can't stand the pollen from the orange groves. And uh, she said, oh, don't worry about that. She said, go get a uh, passport. So I went and got a passport. And when I got the passport, I went aboard Ocean Growing Liners as a hairdresser. Now, if you saw Love Boat, magnify that by 40 times. And that's what I was living. I was in a real paradise, you know. Now, the morals and values I had came into the Army with were suddenly gone down the great tubes, you know. And I would have these women on board. You know, after the war, a lot of women traveled because they were not happy with their marriages, and their husband would say, take a cruise and forget about it. But then they put them behind the chair with some little dago hairdresser there, and then trouble started, you know. And then I had to rationalize this. Now, you're drinking a little bit more, and now you realize that you're committing adultery, and then you drink some more, and suddenly, you know, if you guys can think about this a minute, we rationalize a lot of things. Alcoholics Anonymous can make everything equal. I said, well, I'm not married, so that's not adultery. <laughs> ah, that was good for a while. You wake up the next morning, that conscience kicks in. And then I say, well, they're not from Cleveland, so that's, I'm not coveting my neighbor's goods. <laughs> and uh, now I'm going to tell you something that we don't hear no more about in Alcoholics Anonymous. Now listen when I say this, because you may never hear it again at the rate we're going. <laughs> we deal with something that deals with shame, dishonesty, all of these things we don't hear about now in guilt. The difference between shame is guilt is shame what we do to ourselves and we don't want to tell anybody about it and guilt is what we do to other people. Now it's easy to make amends to other people but i seen on a tape today, Dr. Bob's tape, talks about restitution and that means if you owe somebody any money, you pay them back. Today, they don't want to pay nobody back. So if you give anybody $50 to help them out, don't think about getting it back because it's not even a loan. It's just a gift. They're not going to pay it back. 
But anyhow, we talked about that, and the only way the things that drive us insane is our conscience. Our consciences. And that's what happened when the world began. I'm not a Bible thumper by any stretch. Of, this is my version, okay? Adam and Eve are lollygagging in the Garden of Eden. And Eve goes by that snake, and the snake says, Did you like to eat that apple? I see you admiring it. She says, I would, but she said, I'm afraid. He said, Well, then let Adam eat it. And she, he's, she said, Oh, maybe that can work. So they were, when they were over, and she got a little blink in her eye, you know, and she told Adam, Why don't you try the apple, Adam? And with that, Adam ate the apple. I presume that's what happened. And suddenly, there was no longer God's will. The world at that point was running on God's will. Then we got free will. And we we're all blessed with free will today. And free will can drive you crazy. And the only way you can overcome this, God's not busy keeping score on anybody, but he gives you a conscience. So when you do wrong, you punish yourself mentally. And think about it. If you're a real drunk, you know that. And if you do good, you kind of reward yourself because you feel good, you know. It makes you feel good. Anyhow, my morals are going to hell in this handbasket. And I got in trouble in England. I didn't like the way they run the pubs. Plus, they never paid their war debt from World War I. That was not my business. But I get thrown out of the pubs, and I would go flying out of the door, and I'd say, I'd say you don't understand, you know. And then they take me back to the ship, and I thought they were really mad at me, but they did me a favor. They saved my life. And then I got in trouble in France. I didn't like a lot of things there that annoyed me. And then I got in trouble in Italy. Now, when I, then I figured they hated me. You know, they hated me because I was an American. And you know, it was me all the time. And now I'm drinking pretty good. So in 1949, December of 1949, I know that I have a drinking problem. I don't think it's a problem. I just think I drink too much. That maybe if I go home, my mother could help me get rid of this problem. So I come back to Cleveland just before Christmas in 1949, and I come back here, and I'm drinking heavier, and my mother don't like what I'm doing. My father doesn't like what I'm doing. And, you know, I don't like what I'm doing, but I don't know what to do about it. So I was going to go back to California, that fogged-up thinking. I go back there. I'm going to go to penitentiary. So something happened. Something interceded. God interceded in my life. I met a guy who was just, just opening his first beauty salon. He's been in business for a long time. And he hired me. And because I had all the expertise training from New York City, we start cutting hair. That's before that when the girls wore sausages in their hair, rolled up and shellacked for two days. It'd take you four days to get the shellac out of their hair. <laughs> and so we start cutting hair. And by 1952, I was building my own beauty salon. And I went to a bar, and I used to drink there every day, and he'd tell me that I'm drinking too much. And I, he said, you better do something about it now you've got your own business. I said, well, you know what I think I'm going to do? I'm going to get married. That'll help me. Now, if any of you guys think of getting married is going to cure your drinking, you're going to drag a woman down with you, too, you know. Or you women, if you're drinking, you want to marry a guy that doesn't drink, you drag him down with you. But anyhow, we, I married this girl, this Italian girl, and she, she married me because I was exciting. And I was a fun guy. I was a party animal. And, and then uh, 14 months later, she wanted a divorce, and I couldn't understand why. She said, you know, she said, I married you because you were exciting, and now the excitement is killing me. I can't stand it. <laughs> and I said, why? I said, you know, you got a house, you got a new caddy. I said, you got everything you want. Oh, she said, but I don't have a husband. I said, she said, you drink too much. I said, well, if I do, it's because of you I drink. She said, well, I want a divorce. I said, fine, now I'll show you how to really drink. And she said, we got divorced, you know, just like that. And then now I start my career. My mother starts, she sees my drinking is heavy. She starts taking me to the spiritual healers, you know. And I don't know if you got them out here, but we had a lot from where I come from. We had a Rex Humbart. We had a, a woman, Catherine Coleman. She took me to Pittsburgh, and she took me all over. And then she took me to this guy. Maybe you got Ernest Angley out here, the guy with the bad wig on his head, you know. And I went there, and he bopped me in the head, and that didn't cure me, see. <laughs> and then... And then she took me to Buffalo to get the Keeley cure. Now, I don't know if anyone here have heard of the Keeley cure. It was an adversion treatment. You drink seven crown or whatever you want to drink, whiskey all day, and then they give you a pill to make you puke. Then you got scotch, and they went through the whole routine. And after five days when I left there, I was still thirsty, and it didn't work. <laughs> 1954, I think it was, my uncle came into my living room, and he said, uh, Doc, he said, you're just drinking too much. He said, you better stop. He said... And I said, listen, Uncle Tommy, I know what drunks look like. I see them under the bridge all the time. 
And he just didn't say no more. He said, if you ever want to quit drinking, call me. And uh, he walked away from me. Now, I know you may think it's cruel, but I want to tell you something. Had my uncle intervened in my life at that time when I didn't want to quit drinking, I would have never quit drinking. I'd have made a mockery out of Alcoholics Anonymous. My uncle came into Alcoholics Anonymous in 1941. Now, we got to remember, this is a jewel. It's been a gift that's been handed down by the people who came before us, who fought hard and long to keep this program to what it is today. And if we don't keep this this way, we're going to blow it. And he didn't want clowns like me in AA. At that time, you had to ask to come to Alcoholics Anonymous, or someone had to invite you. And he invited me, and I turned it down. And he walked away from me. Never said a word about Alcoholics Anonymous. And then I continued drinking, and I've got three beauty salons open now. Now I'm going to find a girl that really going to appreciate a nice young Italian boy. And I found an Irish girl, because they know how to drink, you see. <laughs> they drink if the shade goes up, the shade comes down, the grass grows, the grass turns brown, anything. They drink for weddings, funerals, even bar mitzvahs, if they aren't even Jewish, they would do drinking. <laughs> so we know, and this point now starts a career in my life where I just don't like me. I don't like nothing about me, but I, I'm dressing well, I do TV shows, I'm, I'm doing well. But then I got a, this guilty, you know, unfounded, unfounded fears. Does it talk about that in the big book somewhere, I think? Only the real alcoholic knows that when he starts to become paranoid. And I thought there was no alcohol anywhere. And now I'm drinking a fifth and a half of vodka a day. Every two and a half hours I'm drinking. That's what I drank on the ship. Two and a half hours, four to five ounces of vodka. And I would go for two and a half hours, and then the compulsion would set in, and I'd have to drink. So I didn't know what to do, so I said, let's run away and get married. So we ran away 19 miles from our, one of our beauty salons. And I never meant to meet my father-in-law, who only was a mile and a half away. And when I went to meet my father-in-law on Thanksgiving, he watched me drinking vodka out of the water glass. He said, kid, he said, you know something? Drinking like that, you're going to lose those three beauty shops, your wife, maybe your own life. And I said, hold it. Go down and see my Uncle Tommy in Collinwood. Start your own Holy Roller Church. See, my father-in-law came into AA in 1939 in New York City. And he wasn't going to tuck this clown into AA. He wasn't going to take me there because I didn't want to get sober. And no matter what we do, if you don't want sobriety, you can't get sobriety. You can sit in the garage for three years and you'll never become a car. <laughs> and if you're waiting for it to rub off by osmosis, the only thing rubbing off is the dust off your seat and your old age, you're getting older. See, so he walked away from me. January 1st, 1956, I quit drinking cold turkey. January 3rd, I had convulsions in DTs, laid on the bathroom floor. A doctor came over, and he looked at me, and he told my wife I was a hopeless alcoholic. Just leave me go. Give me a couple of shots every couple of hours. Throw a blanket over me, and if I start seeing things, just take the bugs off of me. Pretend you're getting rid of the bugs. And she would do that, you know. I told her, bring the Blessed Virgin Mary in here. It needs a haircut. We had a bust of the Blessed Virgin Mary in the bedrooms. She brought the Blessed Virgin Mary, and I pretend I was cutting that hair, you know. And I said, is it even now, honey? She said, oh, yes. <laughs> a couple of days later, I called the police where we lived, and I said, the mafia's out here, and I named everybody from California. All the names. Three cities converged upon my house there. At that time, we didn't lock our doors. Everybody knew me in this development. It was a pretty high-class development. And they opened the door. It was 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock in the morning. And they come in there, and she said, Audrey, Audrey, where are you at? And she says, I'm here in the bathroom. She said, who called the police? We've got all these people looking for these mafia guys. And my wife said, there, look at that slop laying on the floor there, you know. And that was me laying in the bathroom floor. So you see the insanity. Had I been awakened at that time, I might have been still dead. Because <laughs> if them people got all picked up, I'd have been gone. But anyhow, I, on, a, on the 10th day, they took me to Ingleside Hospital for the mentally insane. And I went there because I didn't, I didn't want to go there. See, I was fighting it all the way. And that's what it said outside, Ingleside Hospital for the Mentally Insane. And we went there, it looked like an insane asylum. And when we went there, I was taken into a room and strapped into a bed, and I was kicking and hollering and screaming I didn't belong there, and they gave me this peraldehyde to drink. Now, for those who saw the movie today, for old-timers here, peraldehyde was the drink of the day. Man, it knock you out at 10, 12 hours. And then the room stunk like hell from that peraldehyde. And every time I come to, they'd have loosened up the straps a little bit. And then I'd start screaming, I don't belong here, and they'd tighten them up again. Now, that went on for a few days. Finally, a guy says, joint therapy. So I went to joint occupational therapy, and all we had was not like today, where you got aerobics and you got co-ed dancing, you know. 
we had a little old lady played the piano, and she had to request some songs. And the guy said to me, the more songs you request, the quicker you get out of here. So I requested every song for the next five days. And I got out, and they gave me a big bottle of pills called Milktown. And I said, when they feel like you're getting nervous, take a pill. If your wife nags you, take a pill. So I figured, well, probably thought four every one hour is good. So I didn't know it was one every four hours. And what happened, I took them, and I was goofy. I don't see why anybody likes pills, but, you know, I got goofy. And I'm sitting at a railroad crossing, and I haven't now drank Evans for 16 days. I have no drinking, just these goofy pills. I'm sitting at a railroad crossing, and... The guard, no guardrails where I'm at, and I got that Cadillac and drive, and I see the train going by, and it's pretty good for a while, and it's going back and forth, and I'm getting woozy, you know, and all of a sudden the whole car starts shaking. Man, I threw the car in reverse, got out of there, got home and called that psychiatrist. I said, you know something? I'm having spaghetti tonight. You think I can have a glass of wine with my spaghetti? He said, how you feel? I said, fine. He said, well, sure, you can have one glass of wine. Don't worry about it. I want to tell you that one glass of wine opened the floodgates of hell until 1961, August 31st. I went on drinking to the end. I had three children born of that marriage. Don't ever remember them being born. I'm not proud to tell you that. I never changed the diaper, never fed them everything, but I was a Mr. Big Shot on television. I did three TV shows a week, and the compulsion was there to drink, and I'd have a Cadillac, that convertible with the top would be down, and I had to get down to the show, and I needed to, we couldn't drink out of an open bottle at that time, and I had to figure a way to drink so I could get down there. Because when the compulsion came in, the clammy sweats and your stomach starts getting nervous and you get cramps in the back of your leg, you need a drink. Only real alcoholics know that. So I had to figure a way to drink. So I had big, we had a big gallon wash glass bottle in the winter washer. So I cleaned that bottle out, filled it up with vodka, and my wife had a bag in the room with a long hose on it. I don't know what the hell it was for. You must know, huh? Something I don't know. <laughs> so I cut the hose off that thing and ran it through the firewall, hooked it up on the outside of that windshield washer coming out, hooked it up underneath the dash with a little wire there, and if I'm driving, I get the compulsion and going down the street with the top down, a nice day, hit the windshield washer button, bing, blades will go back and forth, the hose is in my mouth, I get two hot shots of vodka. <laughs> and you can wave at a cop, you know, do, he don't know what the hell's going on. If you find somebody going through Montgomery here, in a couple of weeks, he must have heard me drinking out of a hose in his mouth. Watch him. He belongs there. But that's what I was reduced to, you know. I no longer was a husband. I sought lower companions. I found girls that liked the way and listened to me when I talked. And I said, if my wife would listen to me like you listen, I'd never leave home. And she said, well, if my husband listened to me like you listen to me, I'd never leave home either. So I said, well, how about next week we go to Niagara Falls? Let's just forget about being married, you know. And now the conscience kicks in, you drink more, you don't like yourself, and things are getting worse and worse. I built a total of eight beauty salons in a school downtown Cleveland, employed over 125 people, and worked every single day. I was a functioning alcoholic, and there are functioning alcoholics. Work every single day, the people, I must have used cent cent, I'd buy them by the long boxes. Remember little black cent cent, these little packages? I'd buy a whole box of them. My tongue would be black, and then I got this, Bianca was green, you know, I, I had all those colors, you know. And, you know, it was just, it's just a, a waste of life. I had no more desire to live. I was afraid to die. Money didn't mean anything to me. Nothing meant anything to me but just drink. Just drink. And I'd wait until 2.30, I'd come home, and just before the bar would close the... I'd go into the bar there. It was Paglio's bar. Mike knows where it's at. His father pulled me out of there when I first got sober. I was not drinking yet, though, see. And, and I would go get a bottle of vodka because I was going to have company, I was telling him, coming over for nights. But I couldn't. I never had a bottle of alcohol that was half full. Any of you guys ever have a half full bottle? My bottles were always half empty. And I had to get more because I was afraid. Afraid there was no alcohol. Now things are getting progressively worse. I go to Vegas, I get in some serious trouble over there for about 15000 and the guy left me there. Now I got big problems. How am I going to get out? I don't know anybody I can call. The guys I knew were not in town, so I had a federal withholding check that I used. And, you know, if you're a tax accountant, you know, you don't touch that money. That's the government's money. And I wrote out a check just like it was my own money, you know, because that was the only check I was able to sign. My family didn't take that away from me. 
And when it comes back, I'm starting now worse trouble. So nice 60, 61, IRS wants me. Everybody's fighting for my body. My wife is not happy with me. Nobody's happy with me. And I just continue on. And this guy that left me in Vegas, that he was a road builder, he built all super highways. And he called me up and he came and said, come to the beach, come on doc, I want to buy you a drink. I needed a drink about that time. We went to a lounge bar and he was like Bill, he came to me. And he said, come on, I want to buy you a couple of drinks. So I had, went to the lounge bar, I had six Benedictine brandies in an hour and a half, and he had six black cups of coffee. And I said, Ted, what makes you think that I might be like that? I said, you know, I don't like you because you left me in Vegas. He said, the reason I left you is because I joined Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, that's the first time I heard that word. And I said, what makes you think I could be an alcoholic? He said, well, if you look like a duck, quack like a duck, you might be a duck. <laughs> I said, oh. I said, well, my wife been talking? He said, no. He said, well, how about now? He said, if we uh, come to a meeting with me tonight, if you don't like it, you don't have to stay. And I wish we could understand that when we sponsor somebody. If you don't like it, you don't have to stay. He said, if you want to drink, that's your business. I'm only telling you what worked for me. He said, there's three doors in the back of that room, and you can leave. So I went to the meeting that night with my wife, and when I was in there, I looked around, these people were all well-dressed, they all had suits on, the women looked nice, we drank out of china cups at that time, we didn't have paper cups, and everybody looked nice, you know, but halfway through the meeting, there was a girl, she was a woman wrestler, and she was good when she was qualifying, but I didn't know that's what she was doing at that time. She was really good, I liked what she did, she did bit people in the wrong places and everything, and she'd get drunk and, oh, she was bad. Then I went out to my car, you see, I got nervous. And I needed a drink, so I went out to the car, started the motor, put the hose in my mouth, got a couple hot shots of vodka, and went back to the meeting. And when I got through with the meeting, the guy said to me, hey, Doc, what are you doing? He said, uh, how do you like it? I said, well, I don't know if I could make it with this alcoholic wife of mine. And they said, well, you keep coming back because she'll get better. Now, that was the first lie they ever told me in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> it's almost 36 and a half years later, and she hasn't got better. I don't understand it. Anyhow, I went back the second time. The first time I heard about Sister Ignatia gives you all you want to drink. Second time I heard that if you're wanted by the FBI, they couldn't take you out of there even for murder, and that was true at that time. You had to do your six days and five nights. Sister Ignatia didn't let anybody take you out. And then I heard about liver trouble, and I didn't know what the hell that meant to me. Anyhow, that's all I heard while I was counting ceiling tiles and floor tiles. One day on August 31st, I woke up. Everything now is documented proof. My story's in the Vatican. There's a movement on to canonize Sister Ignatia, and my story was sent down there within a, after a year after I got a rosary, right after she passed away. Anyhow, I went, and I woke up that morning, I was totally yellow, I couldn't put my pants on, the shoes didn't fit, I was bloated up, and I looked in the mirror, and I thought, my wife, why am I so yellow? My wife wants to put different color fluorescent light bulbs in. <coughs> and the wind up was, I look in that mirror, and I said, oh God, what happened to me? So it was about 11.30, and I called up the doctor, and I said, I don't understand, to the nurse. And she said, will you come in at 1.30? The doctor's here. So at 1.30, I went to the doctor's office. He took one look at me, and he said, you got to go to the hospital. You've got a little bit of liver trouble. And I said, I can't go. It's Labor Day weekend. He said, well, you won't be around for the next weekend. And I said, I can't go. And he said, I'm going to write a prescription out. In the meantime, you think about it. So when he went to write the prescription, I'm sitting there thinking, and all of a sudden, a moment of clarity came into my head, a moment of God's graces that's unmerited justice that we get. And when he walked back into the room, he said, what are you going to do? And I said, I got a sponsor. I don't know where that word came from, but I tell you where I know today. It came when I was counting ceiling tiles and floor tiles. I didn't really know what a sponsor was. But I used it, and he said, call your sponsor and have him take you to his hospital. And I thought he owned the hospital, because he's a very wealthy boy. We had small hospitals at that time. And what happened was, he took me and he called my sponsor. I called my sponsor's house and his wife said, well, he's been waiting for this call. And she said, where are you at? And I give her the doctor's number. She said, he'll call you right back. And he called back in about 20 minutes, talked to the doctor, and the doctor told him what was wrong with me, that I had to get to the hospital quick. And he said, I'll be in to take care of him. He said, well, let me call back and I want to call Sister Ignatius to see if I can get him a bed. And they called Sister Ignatius and she said, bring him in. Now, if I ever think I'm doing too much for Alcoholics Anonymous, I just wanted to tell you what my sponsor did for me. I have no idea how many miles of places from here to there. But if I drive to Dunkirk, New York today from my house, it's a two and a half hour drive. My sponsor was building the off-ramp on Interstate 90 going into Dunkirk, New York. 
and he drove from Dunkirk, New York on old Route 20, almost a six-hour drive because it was all small cities in between. And he got me to Rosary Hall at 11.15 at night. And Sister Ignatia was waiting for me because she knew a drunk could die at any given time of the night or day. They don't die. Today you got a nine-to-five program, like a Chinese laundry, you know? <laughs> if you can't get in Saturday, don't worry about Saturday because the social workers aren't working. And you got to have all this stuff you got to ask them. She took them in. She just put them to bed and treated them. And then she, they, he got me in the rosary hall, and when she saw me, she said, Young man, if you make the night, it's a miracle. I'm calling the priest in. The priest came in and gave me the last rites, and I had him, went into a coma and had an out-of-body experience. And I was taken immediately upstairs to the intensive care unit, and they tapped me five times, took out seven gallons of water in the course of eight or ten days, and I went from 172 pounds down to about 120. And I was fed intravenously for the next month. And my attitude stunk because I signed the power of attorney. I gave my wife everything because I thought I was going to die. Very bad move. <laughs> so what happened is that things got worse. And finally, they were sending all the giants of Alcoholics Anonymous, some of the men that came for the first time once I come out of the coma. And they would come up and talk to me. And Clarence Snyder came up one day and he said something to me, kid, this is like going to a birthday party. You just don't want the cake. You want the frosting on the cake and the cherry on top. I thought he was nuts. Who the hell wants to go to a birthday party for cake, you know? And then people would come by and they'd say, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. You can't go back to social drinking. What do these kid little bums know, you know? My attitude was bad. Finally, in October sometime, Sister Ignatia come down and she said to me, Don, she said, I want you out of Rosary Hall, out of the hospital here because... You didn't stay long enough in Rosary Hall, and you're only allowed one time in your life to go through Rosary Hall. And she said, I want you to go out and finish off your drunk, so this way if you want to come back, I'll let you in the Rosary Hall. And she said, tell me in the morning. And all of a sudden, as she turned around, I said, I'll show you, little penguin. And she said, what did you say? I said, I'll talk to you in the morning, sister. <laughs> and I went down the next day never to take a drink again. When I left Rosary Hall, my attitude was bad. I hated God because I knew my wife had left me. And when I got home, my wife was on her way to Florida. And she took the kids. She had sold all the beauty salons while I was in there that length of time. And sold everything. And I had nothing left. I didn't even have clothes to fit me. And my sponsor took me out every night. And he bought me a wash and wear shirt. I would wash it after the meetings and leave it drip dry all night long, you know. And I went to meetings and it wasn't like today, you know. We only had 80 meetings in this whole city of Cleveland. I'd come from Pennsylvania from Mansfield to Painesville, which was a good area. And you know, there were certain nights we had no meetings in my area. And it was tough, and yet I hated God, but I stayed sober on the fellowship. And let me tell you, you can do that for a while. And then one day my co-sponsor committed suicide. And I ran to Kenny King, who was partners with Colonel Sanders in Kentucky Fried Chicken. And I said, Kenny, I said, can you imagine what that guy did? He killed himself, Jimmy? He said, well, he said, he committed suicide. You understand? And Kenny said, don't worry about it. He showed you that that's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And you don't ever have to commit suicide. And today I can understand where he's coming from, see? And then my sponsor went back to drinking. And he's never gained, regained sobriety because he lost the glow. And so I had two good examples. Bad examples became good examples. And then I looked for another sponsor and I saw this guy. He was Italian, I thought, and... And he took me to Gethsemane, a Trappist monastery. Now, I didn't get sober because of the monastery. I got sober because there was a priest there by the name of Father Ralph Fall, who's better known as Father John Doe, who wrote the Golden Books of Sobriety Without End. And this man saw me come in there, and it was an all-light drive, and we got there early Friday morning, and I was tired, and he looked at me, I guess my didn't know what was happening, but he got me in the corner, and he said, I understand you're not happy in this program. I said, why should I be happy? God took everything away from me. And he looked down his glasses and he said, Kid, God never took nothing away. You gave it away. Man, I didn't like him. <laughs> and he said, Was your life unmanageable? I said, Kind of. <laughs> he said, Kind of. He said, Eight beauty salons, a school, wife, three kids, home and everything gone. I said, Well, you're right there. He said, Thank you for conceding that. He said, Did you have any power? I said, No power over the first drink. He said, that's step number one. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to take you through these steps the way they took me through it. You can do your first six steps, seven steps, within five days if you want to do it. 
And that's what they did in Dr. Bob's days. You know, they didn't fool with you. There was no fooling around. And they, he said to me, that's step number one. You can't. Lack of power is your dilemma. It's not that you're powerless. You have no power over alcohol. You're not an alcoholic. You have no power over alcohol. And he said, the second step, come to believe that a power greater than yourself can restore you to sanity. And I said, wait a minute, I got papers. So the nuthouse would say, I'm sane. He said, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you've been here now for almost two years. And you, if you take a drink now, that's total insanity. And he said, that's the second step. You're nuts if you drink. Expecting different results. And that's what it says in my book. And the third step, he says, now you've got to make a decision. To turn your life and the world over to the care of God as you understood him. And he said, now if there's three frogs sitting on a log, one decides to jump in, how many are left? I said, two. He said, no, three. All they've done is make a decision. Now, wherever you are in your sobriety today, the first three steps have no action required except you become aware that you have no power. Second of all, you may be nuts. And the third, you've got to find a new employer who will call God who's going to remove us from this drinking compulsion. And my book says, now I'm going to tell you where I see it happening today. My book says, this is only my opinion, being convinced after A, B, and C has no effect unless immediately at once, followed by a four-step inventory. Now, if you're here today and you've got a sponsor that tells you you're not ready to take an inventory, get rid of your sponsor because they'll kill you. And that's the truth. And I did what he told me to do and I wrote that inventory down. Then he said, you take that inventory and you give it to God for forgiveness, you give it to yourself for understanding and another human being for humility. And I found a monk in a monastery and I gave him this fifth step. I felt a little better. But while I was there, I still hated God, see? And during the course of going out one night to hear him sing the Gregorian chant, I lost the ring. As I walked down that long hallway, I heard him say to my mother, my mother said to me, St. Anthony, St. Anthony, please come around. There's a ring lost. It's got to be found. And I found the ring. And with a little bit of belief in what my mother told me, I developed a little bit of faith. And faith is not acquired overnight. Faith takes time. Finding this God, he's never been lost. People are searching all over for God. He's never been lost. And this faith takes time. Finding this program takes time. Time is the greatest thing we got going for us. And then the sixth and seventh step, the sixth is very easy. You stop doing the things you like to do. You know. I got to let you in a secret. I had black hair when I came here. I knew what everything was about. Seven, you start doing the things you don't want to do. And I worked all these steps into my life. Now I'm going to tell you something. <coughs> my life was not the greatest in the world, but I started to get better. 1964, four, three guys signed their name on paper so I could get my biobuilding salon. 1970, I met a girl that I used to work with, and I introduced her to the guy she was married to. He dropped dead of a heart attack, and she was drinking like a fish. So I said, come to work for me. By 1971, she had one year of sobriety. We got married. Uh, and she did very well for nine years. And during the course of the time, I had not seen my children, didn't know where they lived, didn't know nothing about them. 1974, I got a call from my ex-wife, and she said, I'm sending the kids home. They're yours. I don't want them no more. And when they come off that plane, I didn't recognize them because my little daughter was being breastfed when she left. And I got a boy come off that plane, and he was sick, paranoid, schizophrenia. He was banging his head going down the long walk at the airport. And I didn't know what to do. You know, and my wife tried to help me, and she had two daughters, and we had five kids there now. And finally, I called the Monsignor, and he took me to St. Vincent's Hospital, and they put him in a psychiatric unit. And for the next, until 1984, that boy spent every year six or seven months in a psychiatric unit. Are we grateful enough that we have a disease that we're the only ones who can cure our disease? We're our own doctor. We're our own physician. We don't need any brilliant brain surgeon. We don't need a psychiatrist to give us pills. We don't need these people. If that boy could have AA and do work these 12 steps, he'd, he'd work them instantly. And now I hate God all over again. I'm not, I'm had, because why did he do this to me? And then in 1980, my wife went back to drinking. Never regained consciousness again, sobriety again, rather. And she died overloaded on alcohol. So I've been on both sides of the fence, see? And I want to tell you something. Alcoholics Anonymous works, and why people drink, I don't know. I haven't got a clue. 
But I know this, something was wrong. But anyhow, my life got better and things got better after she died. And <clears throat> I just continued living and I thank God because the people in AA backed me up 100%. I've never heard anything in AA against my church and I've never heard anything in my church against Alcoholics Anonymous. But I will tell you this, my life started to change and the change came very gradually. But you know, I became active. When Sister Ignatia died, I started the Sister Ignatia group in Cleveland. It's now 31 years old. And I still go to that meeting every Friday night. I became a part of this movement, and as part of this movement is something we've got to become a part of. If you're not a part of it, you're nothing. And if you don't stand for something in Alcoholics Anonymous, you're going to fall for anything. You will fall for anything if you don't stand for something. And if we believe this program works, let's carry it out like they do carry it out. Let's carry the message, not the mess. You know, I travel all around the country speaking, and it's not, it's not a big deal, really not. But, you know, I see Alcoholics Anonymous is working. It's very viable. People are getting sober. And yet you can come to the big cities where it's a big joke. I mean, the big cities, it's a joke. And we don't stand up for what we believe, and then you go home and you're mad, and I stand up because I believe Alcoholics Anonymous must be preserved the way it was here when I got here. The basic steps are still not changed. Some of the people read things. I, I understand from the literature committee, someone was talking there and said that people read this literature that's one way and it's not that way anymore. See, they changed it. Everybody reads God as we understand them. It's not understand, it's understood. It's understood with the faith of a child, and that's where we've got to start. We've got to trust God. And I hear people call up, I can't sleep, what do I do now? You got a problem, you're worried, just wash the floor. That works. And then you call back an hour later, what do I do now? The floor's washed, clean the corners, you didn't do a good job. <laughs> and they make another day, this too shall pass. You see, simple things. And the one that uh, was the worst, it says, think, think, think. No alcoholic should be allowed to think. <laughs> Has your thinking interfered with your sex life? Has your thinking made your marriage irritable? You know, think about that. Take the human and put thinking instead of alcohol. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. You can't go back to social drinking. In 88, they gave me an alternative for my son, and I talked about this, and I'll wind this down. They said, we got a new drug that came from Europe. If you want to try it, we sign the papers. We'll use it on him. If it works, fine. If it doesn't, it's your fault if he goes back to being a wild animal. And I said, I can't do that. And you know why I couldn't do it? Because I didn't trust God. Everybody in this room right now believes in God. But how many of us really trust God? And for 20-some years, I talked about trusting God. And I wouldn't sign the papers. And I finally went to a lot of people. I went to a old priest who lived in, near Sandusky, Ohio. I think Larry knew him. And I said, Father Atkins, what do I do now? I said, with these papers, they want me to sign. He said, you've been talking about trusting God for almost 20-some years or better. Why don't you put your money where your mouth is? I went home and signed those papers, and I'm going to tell you, I'm here to report in 1997. My son is doing well. I thank God. Not where he should be, but he's a far cry better than what he used to be. All because I trusted God. And you know, we've got to trust that power greater than ourselves, because without him, he's dead. Nothing happens. Faith without works is dead. We can live on the fellowship as long as we want, but one day there's a fork in the road and you've got to make a decision. Are you going to put these steps into your life or are you going to drink? Because these steps will rise up to meet you. I believe that. And I've been so richly blessed I have no idea how I can tell you about that, you know. But I will tell you this, in closing, there's a pamphlet called The Members I View. And when I come to AA, everybody got that pamphlet. And in the last paragraph it talks about John the Baptist is languishing in Herod's prison. And you might hear it on your gospel in some Sunday's Gospel of Matthew. And he said, go find my cousin Jesus and tell him if he's the Messiah, I want to get out of prison. Get me out of here. So what happens? They go through Jerusalem. And he sees Jesus talking in parables along the river to these people. And he walks up and he said, are you the Messiah? Because John wants to know. And he said, you tell him only what you've seen and what you've heard. And you tell him to the longest day and the darkest night, the good news, which was that time, was the gospel was being carried through Jerusalem. So as they walk along the road, there's a man on a cot, and he says, pick up your cot and drag it over to the river. And it's going to be difficult, but soak in the river, and when you come out, you'll be able to walk. 
This is my version of it, see? <laughs> so he walked over to the river. It's close to it, you understand? He walked over to the river. He soaked in the water, and he left the cot right there, and he walked out. And you know why he walked out? Because he took an action. Action is the magic word in Alcoholics Anonymous. And then he told the blind man, he said, walk over to the water. We have to put the mud on your eyes, and you'll see when you wash it off. And as they washed the mud off of the eyes, he saw. You know why he saw? Because he took an action. And then he saw the lepers and he said, walk into the river and cleanse yourself because you'll be clean of leprosy. And they walked into the river and they were cleansed because they took an action. And if you were to ask me what I've seen in over 36 and a half years in Alcoholics Anonymous, I would say that I've seen the lame walk, I've seen the blind see, and I've seen the sick as well. And through the longest day and the darkest night, I've seen the good news of Alcoholics Anonymous still being carried, one drunk to another. I want to thank you for listening to me. Thank you for having me here. You don't close it, the Lord's prayer.